Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Bernard Cooley, President and CEO at Pliant Therapeutics. Great to have you on today, Bernard. Hi, thanks for having me. So Bernard, to kick us off, would love if you could talk to us about the arc of your career, your early days, and what got you interested in biotech? Sure. So I started off my career in medical school, basically. So I trained as a physician. I got a PhD as well. And I think, you know, that combination of being a scientist and a physician definitely kind of defined my career path in pharma and in biotech. After I practiced medicine at Mayo Clinic in the mid-90s till 2000, I joined J&J which allowed me to kind of go back to Belgium. I'm a Belgian native, and I was practicing at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. So I joined J&J, actually. I joined the Janssen Research Foundation Group, which was the R&D group of J&J, back in Belgium, initially leading their GI discovery and early development group, as I'm a gastroenterologist by training. My career further evolved in terms of kind of taking different roles and high responsibility by the time I left J&J in 2006, I was head of the internal medicine R&D group in Europe for J&J. So my background was really in clinical developments and management of, I would say, larger R&D type of organizations. So I joined a small biotech company as a co-founder in Belgium called Actogenics. This was a company that was focused on an interesting combination of applying synthetic biology and the insights we had in the role of microbiome in gut diseases and other diseases at that point in time. As you can imagine, microbiome-based biotech, I would say this was 2006, was hot. It was kind of a nascent field. Meanwhile, things have evolved. It is clear that the microbiome is a little bit more challenging than what we thought it would be way back then, definitely in terms of developing drugs. But in any case, we were able to kind of bring two programs to clinical stage and ultimately, in 2015, so almost nine years later, we sold a company. It was acquired by a U.S.-based company, a public company called Intrexon, that was focused on applying different, I would say, platforms within the context of synthetic biology. And actually, that subsidiary of what is now called Presigen, which used to be Intrexon, is still active and still developing programs. So at least that was a success story from a scientific as well as clinical development perspective. I sold the company early 2015 and got into contact with the leadership at Virtual Ventures back in Boston. So I started conversations with Mark Levin, Bob Tepper, Kevin Starr, Neil Exter, and some of the other partners there to see if there was kind of a mutual interest and if there was a possibility for me to be part of one of their new startups that they were working on way back then. And that's Basically, how I came into contact with Flying Therapeutics. Flying was founded, or at least incorporated, I think, in the summer of 2015. And so I just joined right after that with a very small group of people. The company itself came out of UCSF. So our founders are Bill DeGratos and Dean Shepard, Rick DeRain, and Hal Chapman. And so that's kind of how I became part of that group as CEO. 
the reason they were interested in me and I was interested in the company was that it was focused on diseases that I knew as an internist, fibrotic diseases in liver, lung, and potentially other organ systems. It was a small molecule approach and it had a clear path towards clinical development stage, which was really kind of my sweet spot in terms of my experience. Great. Thanks, Bernard, for that overview. A couple of questions. First off, how was your experience starting off in the life sciences in big pharma? And what was that transition like going from big pharma to then your first biotech? The first transition from academic medicine to big pharma was not that challenging, I must say. I mean, at Mayo Clinic, you have this unique opportunity, if there's something that's of interest to you, to be part of these investigator-sponsored clinical trials or early type of translational studies. And Mayo has all the facilities to do so. And obviously, Big Pharma is very interested to connect with Mayo because of patient population, because of the translational knowledge that's there. And so I was quite familiar with working with Big Pharma in these early clinical development or translational setting. I did a couple of studies as a PI when I was at Mayo for a number of pharma companies. So the transition to Big Pharma, the transition to J&J wasn't that much of a culture shock, I would say. For me, it was clear that as a physician with an academic background in a research and development focused organization like Janssen, it was a natural fit. I felt very at home. I felt very welcome. And it was a very much research-driven ecosystem. So it was very similar to Mayo Clinic in that sense. Of course, you have to deal with larger structures, decision-making processes that take longer, etc. But I kind yeah. of felt quite comfortable there. Of course, I was not in the headquarters in New Jersey, so it's hard to compare. But at least within the R&D organization, it's not good. The transition from big pharma to biotech, and definitely very small biotech, private bank, private VC-backed biotech, is a little bit more of a culture shock. Of course, you know, your access to capital, your access to talent is different. And I felt like, okay, I had to kind of reprogram myself and thinking about how do we be smart about things. At some point, we were running 10 different phase one studies at J&J with one single compound. I mean, obviously that's not possible, right? So you have to be much smarter about that. Initially, it's some challenging, but I didn't feel like, okay, this is impossible. When I started off in that smaller biotech, I was CMO and head of research. So I felt very good about that. It was, again, my natural ecosystem, my natural environment. I became CEO about after three years in the job after a failed phase two trial and the CEO at that time left the company to do something differently. So I had to take over. That's when things become a little bit more challenging for me. Being a developer, being a research scientist, turning into a CEO of a venture capital-backed small biotech company is something there. And that was another kind of little adaptation that I had to go through yeah. at that point in time. Coming here, ultimately, was another step up. If you go into a large, well-funded biotech company here in the U.S., with a backer like Bertrand Ventures, again, you have to switch something and reprogram yourself because now there is this incentive, there's enough cash, so make it happen. Don't run the company on a shoestring. Just make sure we get to those catalysts as soon as possible. We've asked folks previously, and I'm a first-time CEO as well. I'm curious, what were some of the things that you approached differently 
the second time around, you mentioned, you know, operating on a shoestring budget isn't a way to go, particularly in a sector like this. Curious if there's other differentiators in terms of how you've approached the job the second time around. So definitely the access to capital allows you to change your MO in that sense. I think the first time around, I think I knew what was needed, but I couldn't necessarily do it. But definitely, again, lessons learned for me was like, hire the right people up front. Don't wait. I think there is sometimes a tendency, it doesn't matter how much money you have, to kind of be careful about your hiring. And I'm not I'm not talking about numbers. I'm talking about specific competencies you're looking for. Just to give you an example, I had the opportunity to hire our CMO, Eric Lefebvre, extremely experienced CMO. It was a little window because of his personal career at that point in time. And we were like, at least a year away from the clinic, if not more. So in normal circumstances, you would hesitate. Can I keep him busy? Can I afford him? And we hired him. I think probably one of many, but definitely, how would I say, it changed the course of the company right there when I brought him in. We did that a couple of times. It's like, okay, look, we have an opportunity to find the best athlete who's available. We may not be the best team yet, but let's bring him in or her in and see what happens. And I think that was for me a key component because ultimately my success is entirely based on the team. And having those, rather than bringing in a medical director or a lower level who's kind of readily available, we had this opportunity. And it not always happens, right? It, it's serendipity. There's an op opportunity. I think you have to seize that opportunity. And that is also the role of the CEO is seeing that opportunity rather than be kind of driven by budget and a normal way of building a company, or at least what you think is the kind of a structured way of building a company, you know, seeing that opportunity to start having that A team already from the start. And obviously in my previous job in Europe, because of budget, I didn't know that. It was a small, inexperienced team that was the starting team and you lose time. You lose time right there. And you see it happening all over again when these huge Series A happening in these new startups and they put an A team together right away, then, you know, okay, at least they check that box. I'm not saying it's a guarantee for success, but at least you have the basis to kind of go fast and do the right yeah. thing. And you mentioned the first time you were CEO, that was a European-based company. I'm curious to hear your perspective on the European ecosystem to support biotechs compared to, let's say, hubs like San Francisco and Boston, and how that's changed over the last 10 years. So in Europe, things have changed, for sure. When I go back to my time in 2006, when I started, there were a few small, small shops. I mean, it's like there was some biotech activity in the UK, around Cambridge, notably. Of course, you have some around other academic institutions in Scandinavia, like around Karolinska. There's some spin-offs there, same in Belgium, where we have the Flanders Institute of Biotechnology. And every country has a little bit of that. They're different little hubs, but nothing compared with Boston or San Francisco at all. And there's no concentration of investors. I think the same VCs way back then are still the same VCs today. Some very large yeah. ones in the UK, in Holland, and I mean in the Netherlands, a few in Scandinavia, maybe a few in Germany one in Spain, I mean, France, and that's it. So the access to capital over the past 10 years within the European context hasn't changed. I still see the small bets being placed. I still see the 30, 20, 30, 40 million CVs. I still see the tranching. 
I still see the drip feeding. I still see this kind of fear of losing money rather than this willingness to invest money and take some risks. So I think the mentality hasn't changed yet. Although some of these groups are very well funded now. So now we are talking about rounds that are closing that resemble what we see in the US. Forbion, mm. close to 1.5 billion fund. LSP, another big life science fund in the Netherlands, was acquired by a PE player, EQT. Eminware closed a big fund. Gilded closed 700 million euro fund. These are numbers that are more like US spec, I would say. But the mentality of those investors not necessarily has changed. Just you see all these multiple smaller bets. I think that's still kind of a challenge for them. There's definitely, and some US-based investors have seen that, I think there are definitely interesting opportunities over there in terms of valuation versus kind of technology and stage of some of the programs. I think you mm. can pick up some relatively cheap, well-validated assets. I mean, pick up, you can invest into. And I think there are the exit opportunities are there as well. We saw recently back to buy or although public company being acquired by Ironwood for a billion dollars. So there yeah. are definitely, it's not at the pace or the scale that we see in the US, still not. I'm curious, Bernard, you talked about the importance of having access to lots of capital in the early days and why that's preferred. Over the last couple of years, we saw very dynamic capital markets with lots of companies being formed and funded and such. But we also saw some of the negative effects of that. And since you've done this now a couple of times, what advice would you provide folks that are listening in terms of threading that needle of not overspending, focusing on, let's say, value creation, but still making sure that you are spending the cash because of the upside? How do you approach that? It's the $1 million question. And I don't have a, this is the standard way of doing this, because I think there are multiple ways. I think for me, critically important is it's science and data trust. Those are the catalysts in our industry. There's at least in an early startup biotech and even clinical stage biotech, whether you're private or you're public, catalysts or data. Financing in the public space without data these days is almost impossible unless you have a commercial launch. And again, that's a catalyst for me because it only happens after you have the right data and the FDA approves your drug. But that being said, I think your equity story is very much driving the way you kind of raise money. And it's a mix of focus on assets that you think will be successful because it's de-risk, because the science makes sense, because the indication is not me too, but high medical need. I mean, there number of different variables, parameters that you can use to kind of measure success and the way you think about it. But for me, it's really kind of plot your way from catalyst to catalyst to catalyst, because those are the financing opportunities that you have. And then, of course, you want to raise money at the highest valuation possible in order not to dilute too much and to make your cost of capital as you move forward lower and lower so you can spend more on what you need to do. I think for me, there's no model. You just think about what is the asset or assets that are going to give me highest chances of success in terms of generating data that will serve as catalysts. Mm. And what I have seen happening in the past is emotional attachment to an asset for whatever reason, or let's continue despite the data are not really kind of what we are looking for. I think one has to have the courage 
to stop things or to change course or to pivot if it doesn't work out. I mean, it's not always easy, but stubbornly continuing a development path because you're emotionally attached to it is not going to help either. So sometimes you have to make pipeline prioritizations and kind of kill programs in favor of the, and actually you should do that all the time. You should look at your pipeline, you should look at your programs all the time in a very, what's the killer experiment? Not what is the hypothesis confirming experiment. It's really mm -hmm. about what is the experiment I can do, whether it's clinical study or whatever. And that's how you continue development. What's the frequency, Bernard, with which you review your pipeline or you would recommend folks review their pipelines? We do it every quarter. Every quarter. Really driven by, of course, we are a public company, so you have board meetings that are kind of focusing on that as well. Right? Yeah. And definitely we have a pipeline. We have been successful. And in a way, you would almost say it's a champagne problem, but we have a lead program that has at least two indications built into it within the fibrosis space. We even haven't talked about fibrosis, I realized. And then we have a second program in oncology that's entering phase one in patients, and that had a almost eventless kind of preclinical development. There was everything just was going our way. And now we have a third program, and it looks like it's the same situation. So suddenly you have an abundance of programs, and then you have sometimes to make decisions, right, in terms of resource allocation and even stopping or thinking about partnering or whatever the different means are that you have available to kind of create value out of something that seems to work, but you may not be able to afford. So. Yeah. So on the topic of fibrosis, let's go there. And if you would educate us on fibrotic disease and why you decided to pursue a company that was focused on fibrotic disease. Absolutely. So fibrosis, I would say, we had a slide in our initial pitch deck way back in 2015, 2016. It said fibrosis, the silent killer. And I think that's what exactly it is. It is a disease or it's a process. It's a pathological process in which normal tissue gets replaced by scar. And in some organs that will affect the function of the organ in a very insidious, slow, progressive, but ultimately deadly way. I mean, it ultimately leads to an increased mortality or reduced survival. I'm just taking our only kind of lead disease, if I may call it, or lead indication, which is idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. In 2016, we were still in an education phase about telling people, these days, IPF is pretty well known because suddenly the field has expanded multiple companies working on it. So everybody is seeing now the need. IPF, when you're diagnosed with a disease, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, you will die. It's a death sentence. Unfortunately, I mean, I hate to say this, but the median survival is anywhere between two and a half and five years, which is worse than stage three blessings. Rightfully so, a lot of the efforts of academic research and well as biotech has been on oncology because it was such a deadly disease. Now there are multiple opportunities to treat cancers, even in far advanced stages, combination of therapies, happening cell, whatever. I mean, there's multiple opportunities here. Fibronic diseases have been kind of left behind. And I think that's where we now are working on. It's a high medical need. And I think we kind of, as a company, we want to focus on trying to treat these patients and provide a way to stabilize the disease and extend their life. Whether we can cure fibrosis in the sense that we kind of resort, regress an existing scar tissue, let's say in the lung, remains to be seen. And then that's part of our development while moving forward. But at least if you can kind of stop the disease at the time it's getting diagnosed, uh, rather than having 
progressing the disease, I think it will make a tremendous difference, right? And it's a process that affects liver, it affects lung for different reasons, right? I mean, it's IPM is just one of many fibrotic diseases. It is interesting that at least with our lead program, it seems that the common pathway that leads to fibrosis is quite similarly across these different diseases and even across different organ systems, irrespective of what is causing the disease. Mm-hmm. IPF, we don't know what it causes. Some other diseases we know there's no immune background. But ultimately, scar formation is driven by a biological uh, molecular mechanism that seems to be addressed in our drug that hopefully will allow us to kind of expand in multiple indications as we move forward with our retail reps. And you mentioned that you're in the clinic now with that lead program and you're pursuing other indications as well in other body systems. I imagine that can be quite challenging when you're focusing on multiple therapeutic areas and organ systems. Curious how you've been approaching that challenge as you interrogate new therapeutic areas and what advice you would provide for folks that you know perhaps have some sort of platform technology but are therapeutic area agnostic. So in our case, because we know it works on fibrosis, we know it works on fibrosis in liver and lung, we decided to choose or to suit two diseases that... And the choice was driven by a number of different decision points, right? First one was, is there a real medical need? Is there anything out there that's already there? So is there a, both an economical case and a medical case to be made, or even an ethical case to be made for choosing this indication? And that was how we came to IPF, lymphatic pulmonary fibrosis, which obviously, as I mentioned, is, they're two approved drugs, but they don't change the course of the disease. Survival is not affected. And then primary sclerosing cholangitis, which is a very rare progressive disease in the liver of basically sclerosing or fibrosing of the bile ducts. And there's no treatment, nothing approved. In both cases, the disease is relatively chronic and ultimately beats the And so, but what we do know is that having those two diseases, it allows us to not only build value in those diseases, but also provide validation in related diseases. The lung fibrosis bucket is much bigger than just IPF, but showing effect in IPF, let's say it's with phase 2A now and then later phase 2B, allows us to at least create the opportunity to expand into other indications with with relative certainty that it may work and that it will reduce the fibrosis in those and, and that you can get an approval on additional indications. Same with PSC, we know there are a number of related what we call fibronic cholangiopathies that have a similar kind of ultimate process in terms of fibrosis. And so we think our drug will work there as well. So let's prove it first in two kind of model diseases that are at the same time lead indications, and then you can expand into those others if that's something you wish to do. And also with data in hand, it will be possible to generate capital to do so, right? I mean, you need that first. Rather than doing everything at the same time, without true validation in one of them. I think that's how we have approached that. And then there are other indications. We have been testing our drug in human tissue rather than patients. We use human tissue of patients, let's say, with kidney fibrosis. We put our program or compound that is in development on it, and we see a reduction in fibrosis. So at least we know, based on human tissue work from patients with kidney fibrosis, that it probably will work in kidney fibrosis as well. Now, we're not going to venture into kind of a clinical development, very challenging, very long, but at least we have a data. 
And so when it comes down to talking to investors, talking to strategics, you have that kind of basket of diseases where at least there is a certain level of validation that shows that this may work as well. And I think that's how we have been approaching this platform. Companies, I think, should focus, I mean, in my opinion, should focus on one or two diseases and the choice of which is driven by medical need, feasibility, how long does it take to get to a data point that shows that it works. And that means that potentially the platform may work in other related diseases as well, without necessarily doing everything at the same time. And has that approach changed over the last couple of years as we've gone through this correction? As in, are you seeing more companies now focusing on a smaller number of assets versus years past? And curious how you currently are operating in this environment and how this environment impacts your own operating model. I mean, so your first first part of your question, yeah. have I seen changing platform companies to kind of more focused on assets? I'm not sure. You see it happening, but I'm not sure if this is kind of everybody is doing it. I still see platform companies that are really going for blue sky and trying to do everything at the same time. And sometimes these platforms are so powerful and it works. And sometimes it's too much at the same time. And it's so capital intensive that they don't get there. But I know definitely examples of companies that start with a platform and use that to focus on a single disease or a single or two molecules and then kind of continue. A company I'm relatively familiar with because we are from the same third drug venture f- family is Relay Therapeutics, uh, which, yeah, sure. you know, the platform is this very cool kind of protein movement platform. And I don't know the details, but they kind of have real compounds, real drugs that are in development in specific tumor types. So I think there is this kind of going from platform to asset is definitely something that happens. What has changed in terms of our approach? I wouldn't say the last couple of years. I would say the last couple of months. A lot of this kind of indication selection and sequencing has been now affected by IRA. And I think notably in the small molecule field, as you know, you Medicare, and we are in the Medicare space. IPF is a disease of older people, often covered by Medicare. And so I think the Medicare drug price negotiation under IRA will be definitely affecting the way we look at indication selection and notably a sequencing of an indication. What it basically, I would say, encourages you to do is kind of look at orphan and keep it as small as possible because that gives you an exception. And if you want to look at multiple indications of doubles each other, and that means that you kind of lose your orphan status, you want to launch everything at the same time or as close as possible to each other in terms of different indications, rather than thinking about life cycle management and start with launching one and then wait for four years and then launching the next one. And because then your nine-year kind of negotiation mm-hmm. time point approaches rapid. And I think that's something that companies like ourselves are working hard on and trying to understand. And it definitely has impacted the way we think about launching our drug in multiple indications versus single indication and the sequencing of those indications. So I think it means more of an upfront investment if that's what we want. Thanks, Bernard. Appreciate you talking about a topic that you're dealing with in real time and how you're reacting to it. And we talked a little bit about oftentimes the emotional attachment that folks have to an asset. Wanted to pull on that thread a little bit and perhaps go in a different direction, which is the emotional aspect of being a CEO. 
And oftentimes it can be a lonely experience for CEOs. I'm curious how you have dealt with the emotional aspects at Pliant differently. And if you could share some of those learnings from your first experience being CEO to now second experience. Absolutely. So my first experience was, I was very lonely. I mean, I was a first time CEO and I would argue the VC world way back then in Europe was not the most pleasant one. It was not a fight. It was a lot of pressure. It was a lot of pressure. And as I mentioned as well, I had a young team coming out of academia, never done by tech, not really kind of C-level or senior executive level. And it was just me who had an executive background from J&J. And that was very lonely. And it was also the reason when I finally sold the company, I was kind of never, ever again this way. This is why I want to build a real story, a real success story, but the ecosystem needs to be different. I want a well-funded company, great technology, access to not only capital, but talent as well. And so here in the Bay Area, that made perfect sense, right? I mean, all those boxes were basically checked. It's much less lonely here. And the reason for that, when I started with Third Rock Venture, the partners really take care of me. In principle, I was a bit of an exception. In principle, Third Rock Ventures, and I know Flagship and some other of those larger funds do the same thing. They like first-time CEOs because first-time CEOs have a certain way of doing things, are motivated, fresh blood. They don't repeat their old mistakes because this is the first time and they want to succeed. I suppose it makes perfect sense. I was a second-time CEO, so that was slightly different, but they surround you, they help you with everything you need. It's not that they're overbearing, but they were definitely there and I could make those calls. And it was not like calling an investor. It was more calling a partner, helping us out because they had all interest in you succeeding because that ultimately would be good to their fund as well. The fact that I was able to hire a pre-executive experience team early on, CMO and CBO and then all the rest of the team later on helped me a lot because I had peers around me. So I was not that lonely. We had an executive team, still have a great team that works well together. And it really kind of allows me to focus on what I need to do, which is kind of thinking about the strategy of the company, kind of the outward looking face of the company, making sure we get investors interested, et cetera. The operational part of the job, HR, et cetera. I have excellent people to take care of that. So also my model is very much delegation. I mean, another lesson that I learned is like, you can't do everything yourself. I mean, you're going to burn yourself. So I think today I feel absolutely not lonely at all. It's a great place to be. And the team is, I think, the key to that. Mm -hmm. Of course, as a public CEO, it is public company CEO. It's the, that's something I had to learn. But again, yeah. I have a very experienced head of IR who has helped me a lot with kind of navigating the post IPO era. So yeah, I think that's what I learned. And Bernard, if I could ask you to reflect for one more minute, and if you go back to your younger self, given all the experiences that you've had to date, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self? Don't overthink it. That's one that I not necessarily follow your instinct, but follow common sense. What I see happening often with young or at least first-time CEOs or whatever level you're at is like, because you feel like there's so much pressure and you need to succeed. Biotech is a high pressure system. It's inevitable. You tend to overthink everything and complicate matters. And I give you an example of don't get emotionally attached to things. 
common sense and following a certain logic helps you a lot without second guessing you all the time. Like, is this the right thing? And what happens is, yes, you have to check some of that. But if you overthink it, first, you will make mistakes anyway. And second, it becomes a very unpleasant job, I think. It's a very stressful situation. And the other lesson I learned is like, if you don't know it, that's fine. You are kind of a conductor of an orchestra and you have to make sure that you surround yourself with the right people. That's another piece of advice. And as I said before, bring in that top talent, bring in those top athletes as from the moment they are available. And if it's not the right timing, just do it because afterwards you may not get them in, right? And so yeah. uh, having that kind of A team around you will drive your own success as well. So Great. Well, Bernard, on that note, thanks for joining us today for sharing a bit about your knowledge and all the exciting work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Pliant. Thanks, Raul. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.